We began a series in the book of Matthew, and um, come uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, we took a little um, little sidetrack, but now we return to Matthew in the series that we're going through. So turn to Matthew chapter 4, and before the Easter holiday season came about, we had just talked about the baptism of Jesus. We had talked about why in the world John the Baptist had to have a, have a role in this ministry, why he came to lay the carpet for Jesus to come as the Messiah, uh, the Son of God. We had talked about that. We talked about this ministry of repentance and what repentance, what part repentance plays in us coming to salvation, to salvate, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about how Jesus' ministry differed, differed from John the Baptist's ministry. And now, at the end there of chapter 3, we saw that in verse 16, well, in verse 15, John the Baptist at first did not want to baptize Jesus. He didn't see any purpose behind it. And Jesus replies and says in chapter 3, verse 15, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Up until this point, Jesus did not really have much of a ministry. He wasn't supposed to. Up until this point... John the Baptist was laying the groundwork for the ministry of Jesus Christ. We've been going through Matthew for several, for several weeks now, and just now we are starting to get to the very beginning of when Jesus actually is ministering. But as we've, said, as we've seen before in, in, in a weeks prior, the gospel has still been very evident even though Jesus himself has not been doing anything. Jesus himself has been, not necessarily not doing anything, but he hasn't been performing miracles, preaching, walking around with his disciples. He hasn't been doing any of this. Up until this point, Jesus was born. Up until this point, we had a lot of different events surrounding his birth. We had um, the baptism of Jesus, and, uh, and that's been pretty much it. Not a whole lot has really happened, but we have still seen the gospel proclaimed throughout even, throughout even the speechless times from Christ. And now we're finally getting to a point where Christ himself is ministering, but we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. Because in chapter 4, Jesus isn't really ministering. Jesus isn't really preaching still. We see now his life. We now are thrown into a scene where now Jesus is the prime figure and we see him as an adult. We see him on the very fringe of his earthly ministry here on this, on this earth. But in chapter 4, let's just read chapter, verse 1 together. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He starts by saying then. Then. At what point? Then. Right after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descended upon Jesus like a dove, and the Father confirms Christ's Sonship by saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So now at this point, the Holy Spirit has come upon Jesus Christ, and God has, the Father has commissioned him to now go forth in the pleasure of the Father for the work that he has to be done. Jesus is now, just like he told um, John the Baptist, he is now going to fulfill all righteousness. But it's going to be a journey. And we see the big, right now in chapter 4, we're seeing the beginning of the journey of Jesus Christ. And this, and this beginning is not so different than the lives that we live here on this earth. And we're going to look in that. Today we're going to be talking about why was it such a big deal for the Holy Spirit to descend upon Jesus Christ. And why was it a big deal that Jesus be tempted by the devil? That's what this chapter is about. Well, at least the first portion of this chapter. Chapter 4, 
of Matthew is about Jesus's being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was driven by the Spirit. We're going to talk about the Spirit and why the Spirit had to lead him if Jesus is God. Why is it that he had to be led by the Spirit? And we're going to be talking about why in the world did Jesus have to go into the wilderness to be tempted? And what do these things have to do with you and me? How does, how does any of this matter? So we're going to be talking about that today. In chapter 4, verse 1, it is said that then the Holy Spirit, he summons Jesus into the wilderness. This is the same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus just a few verses prior, like a dove. We, we've all seen pictures of that happening. We, people have painted this, we've drawn this, we've seen it happen in movies or TV shows, portraying Jesus and the, the picture of the dove coming upon Jesus' head. Different businesses have the symbol of the dove um, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a very monumental moment in Jesus' life. And rightly so, because it has implications for Jesus and for us, for our salvation and for our life. It is important to understand something about the person of Jesus and why it is the Holy Spirit filled Jesus. Because like I said, we like to think of Jesus as he is God in and of himself, is he not? Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. But we need to understand something. When Jesus was born into this world as a human child, he was, for all intents and purposes, by his own will, by his own volition, made just like you and me. And it was God's will that it be so, since it was necessary for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of your salvation and for the sake of my salvation, it was necessary for Jesus to become just like you and me. We are, more, we are far more comfortable not thinking about the fact that Jesus was just like you and me because we want to give him honor, we want to give him glory, we want to give him praise, majesty. We want to think about him as the powerful Christ. And it is good for us to think honorably of him because in this day, Jesus is high and lifted up. He is seated on the throne of, on the throne of God in heaven, and it is right for us to give him majesty, glory, and honor. But we need to understand something about this time in Jesus' life. That it was God's will for a time for Jesus to be devoid of majesty, of power, of honor. We don't want to think about that. That sounds like heresy. We don't want to think about it. But it is necessary for us to believe this because it brought about our salvation. And that's what we're going to look at for some time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. You can turn to these passages if you'd like, but I'm not going to delay in, uh, in waiting. I'm just going to read these. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul explains that for a time, Jesus cast off his glory and his honor and his power. He got rid of it. He shed it like a snakeskin. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he is saying that at a certain divinely ordained time, okay, Jesus came at a perfect time in human history, and that's a different lesson altogether. But he starts by saying, when the fullness of time has come, what he's saying is at the perfect time, at the time that God had ordained that Jesus to come onto the scene, Jesus comes onto the scene. And how? How does Jesus come onto the scene? How does the Savior of the world come onto the scene? God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He was born as a human being. He was not born as some deity, as some ruler, some magistrate. He was just born as some human being, just like you and me. And he was. And it also says that Jesus was born under the law. This is significant for us to understand. Jesus was born under the law. Jesus, as God, was the one who instituted the law. He's the one that gave the law to the people. 
he as God would be the judge who carries out the justice of the law. Not only that, but in his glorified state, Jesus would be incapable of being judged by the law. Since the law itself was sent forth by him to test, to teach, and to prepare the people who had been subjected to a fallen and dark world. There is no reason why Jesus should have to subject himself to a law that was not meant for him. It would be like a high school teacher giving a test to his students and then subjecting himself to pass that very same test. That's not for the teacher. That's for the students, the students who are learning, the students who are, up being, who are being brought up. The teacher is the one who's supposed to be in charge of the students, who's supposed to be testing them, who's supposed to be giving them the learning. He has no need, as a high school teacher, to take the same tests that the students are taking. But Jesus, the lawgiver and the judge, he places himself under the law and for a time subjects himself to its standards to be judged according to it, whether he be righteous or whether he be unrighteous. This is not something that we have the right to do to God. We do not have the right as feeble human beings to judge God. Because we have, God cannot sin against us. We have no law that is inherent to our nature by which we can hold God accountable. But here we see Jesus coming down and submitting himself to that very same law that went forth from his nature to the world. And in doing so, he sheds the diplomatic immunity that he naturally has under all circumstances as the universal, as the universal sovereign. He sheds that right. Not that God has the, right to, has the right to sin simply because nobody can hold him accountable. That's not what I'm saying either. God cannot sin. I want that to be very clear to you. It's rather that, it's not that he has the right to sin because there's no one who can hold him accountable. It's rather that he cannot sin because the law that defines sin is a law that flows from his very nature. It's a law that flows from his very being. He cannot sin because for him to sin would be for him to not be himself. I personally, and my wife can testify to this, I can't bear children because it's not in my nature to, have to, to bear children in my body. I can't give birth. I'm a man. just can't do it. I wasn't made with the ability to bear children. I'm incapable. Likewise, it's not in God's nature to sin because anything that could be judged as sin would be against God's nature to do in the first place. That's where the law itself came from. To show what godliness is. Godliness is to be like God. And if God could sin, then God would not be like God. And that cannot be. It's a logical inability. But we see that even though Jesus had no need as the universal sovereign to be under man's judgment, we therefore conclude that Jesus cast off his divine authority so that he could become as we are. And becoming as we are, he became subject to human authority. He didn't have to. He didn't have to be subject to human authority. We have no rights over him. Absolutely none. But Jesus subjected himself to the authority of the law that was supposed to be carried out by human leaders, by human shepherds, he found himself in a place where he had to submit to that. He had to submit to the priests and their teaching. He had to submit to the high priest. He had to submit to the Levites. He had to fulfill all of these, all of these uh, sacred duties, these sacrifices, all of this stuff, because he himself was under the law. A law that he had no need to be under. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the author of Hebrews states, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, the author of Hebrews, if we were to look back in chapter 1 for a little while, which I'm not going to take the time to do, had just established Christ's supremacy over the angels. He said things like, 
having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And he also said, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten to you? He also said, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now there's a lot of, you don't have to understand all of that. All of, if you want to read the Hebrews chapter 1 yourself, it'll make a little bit more sense. But what the quotations I was quoting there was showing Christ's supremacy over the angels. The angels were servants of Jesus. Christ is higher than the angels, has authority over the angels. But then in chapter 2, verse 9, the author of Hebrews states, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. Jesus Christ cast off some authority. He cast off authority that made him supreme over the angels. It is not heresy for us to believe this because the scripture itself teaches us this. And it is for the good of our salvation. Just like he said to John the Baptist, it was fitting so that he could fulfill all righteousness, which we are going to continue to build this thought. He said he did this in chapter 2, verse 9 of Hebrews, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He cast off the authority, the supremacy, the divine power, because he, it was necessary for him to taste death for everyone. If he had kept all of that, he would not have been able to do that. So according to this, Christ for a time took on a form that was lower than the angels, namely humanity. He took weakness upon himself. He became, even in comparison to the angels, powerless, even though he has all the rights to be the universal sovereign. He, rather, trades his sovereignty for weakness and vulnerability. And those are traits that you and I have, right? Weak, vulnerable. We don't like to admit our vulnerability because that would make us vulnerable, right? But Christ becomes like us. He becomes weak. He becomes vulnerable in his humanity. In Philippians chapter 2, why don't you look at that with me? Philippians chapter 2, we're just, we could read several verses out of here, but we're just going to read a few. Starting in verse 5, this is Paul writing. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, let's sit on this for a second. What he's saying here is that Godhood was not a thing that Jesus had to grasp after. It wasn't something that he had to try to attain because he already had Godhood. He's God. He didn't have to go get Godhood. He didn't have to try to be godly because he himself is God through which the definition of godly comes. It was not heresy or blasphemy for him to consider himself one with God because it was true. He was charged with blasphemy by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the religious leaders for that very thing while he was here on the earth. But it did not intimidate Jesus because he already knew very well that he had every right to be called equal with God. He himself said, before Abraham was, I am. Giving himself the name that God in the burning bush gave to himself for Mo to Moses. If we remember that story, when Moses approached a, a burning bush that didn't burn, but it was burning, but it didn't burn. And he said, who should I tell the people sent me? He said, tell them I am sent you. And Jesus gives himself this name of God. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. He knew full well he had the right to be the universal sovereign. He, he wasn't intimidated by unbelief. He wasn't intimidated by these charges of heresy. Because he was confident in this one thing, that he's God. Even in his humanity, he still knew this. 
Look at verses 7 and 8 in Philippians chapter 2. Even though he, all, he was very confident in his godhood, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So in spite of all of this, all of this godhood, all of this power, all of this authority that was inherent to his nature, he let that go. He dropped his royal garments and took up a ratty robe and a serving cloth, both in appearance and concerning his power. Now some of you might be asking yourselves, what in the world does this have to do with Matthew chapter 4? Well, because you need to understand the implications of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus in the flesh was not acting according to his own sovereignty. Look at that again. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was being led by the Spirit. He was not going on his own. He was told by the Holy Spirit, go to the wilderness. So he himself is placing himself in a position of obedience to the Holy Spirit. We saw a few verses back that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The question still remains, why would the Holy Spirit have to fill Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ had all the power to do all of his will in and of himself? Why would he need the Holy Spirit to come upon him? Because when Jesus was born of a woman into human form, he abandoned the power that was previously inherent to his nature. Now he had to walk and act according to the power of another person of the Godhead, that is, the Holy Spirit. And please, this is probably hard for us to think about, because like I said, we don't like to think about the Christ being powerless. But we have to remember, he did this so that he could fulfill our salvation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. I want, to, I want to address first the question, why did Jesus have to be tempted by the devil? Why in the world? I mean, surely the devil knew that Jesus wasn't going to sin. Surely the Holy Spirit knew that Jesus wasn't going to sin. Why did he lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? This has to do with both his, both, of, both his humanity and his purpose. It was necessary for Jesus to be like us, like you and me, in order to fulfill the will of God. We see a taste of this in chapter 4, verse 2. Let's read that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2 says, And when he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, I want you to, oh, let's sit on this, because this is a verse that sometimes we, we just fly through because we want to get to the temptations of the devil. We're actually not even going to talk about the individual temptations. We're going to reference one of them, but we're not actually going to talk about them today. That'll be next time. But something we skim over without giving it much thought is, why 40 days and 40 nights? Why 40? Why not 39? Why not 38? Why not 42? Why is it 40 days and 40 nights? What else comes to your mind that relates to the number 40 in the Bible? What? Israel. Israel in the wilderness. The Hebrew people wandered in the wilderness for how many, day, how many years? 40, right? Now, this might sound a little kind of out there, but there's a reason why Rich read Deuteronomy chapter 8 this morning. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want you to see this because this is important. Chapter 8, we're just going to look at a couple of verses here. Jesus, even during his temptations, was becoming like his people. Chapter 8, verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness. And then here he gives us the reason. If I asked you the question just off the top of your head, why did, why did 
Israel wander for 40 years in the wilderness? Well, because they sinned, because they complained against God. And those are right answers. Those are answers given in another spot. But here he gives another reason that God had for sending the people to wander for 40 years. And he says, to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And in verse 3 he says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not what live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now that last phrase, doesn't that sound familiar? This is Jesus' response to Satan in his first temptation. I'm not going to sit on this, but in verse chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is directly from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Jesus himself was fasting by the leading of the Spirit for 40 days to correlate with the 40 years that Israel was wandering in the wilderness, the Hebrew people, I should say, were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He is relating to his people. The reason why the people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years was so that they could be humble and to test them to see, to put their obedience to action. So when Jesus went to be tempted by Satan, he did so, so that he could become just like his people. He, Jesus, personally cast Satan out of heaven to earth itself. And now Jesus is coming under the oppression and the temptation of that same Satan that he cast out. Not that he needed to. He is the authority over Satan. He cast Satan out. Satan sinned against him because it's his nature that the law proceeds from. Satan sinned against God. Jesus. And now Jesus is subjecting himself to the oppression and temptation of Satan. Not because he had to but because in order for, for him to be the perfect Savior, he had to become like you and me. He had to become like you and me. But why is that so? Hebrews 2, 9 through 11. Let's look there. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, we already read verse 9, but we're going to use this and keep going. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, we already established here that he, he subjected himself to humanity. For some reason, that's related to our salvation. In verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, so all things exist for his sake, and by whom are all things, so he's the creator of all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So let's talk about this for a second. Through Jesus' suffering and death, he, Jesus, was therefore crowned our Prince of Peace. He was through his suffering and through his death crowned our everlasting Father, our King of Kings, but only after accomplishing a redemption that made the impossible possible. The unification of sinful man and holy God. The two cannot go together. The only way they could be one is if God became sinful and became like people, or if man became holy like God. And it is against God's nature to sin, for from him proceeds the law that establishes sin. And man cannot of his own power become holy, because we've already sinned, we've already committed condemnable acts. 
So he, Jesus, through humbling himself, casting off his power, his authority, through humbling himself in that manner, came and made this unification between holy God and sinful man possible by making righteousness, perfect holiness, possible for man. Originally, when we hear the word redemption, redemption had to do with the exodus that we just talked about. The exodus of drawing the people out of Egypt. And from there, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they did so at the leadership of Moses. But now Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 10, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now Jesus became the captain of a new exodus, a drawing out of a spiritual Egypt, bringing us out of sin, bringing us out of death, bringing us out of the the kingdom of Satan. And he unifies us with God himself and makes us co-heirs of the kingdom of God along with Jesus, who now, according to verse 11 For which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now Jesus calls us his brothers. Something we don't deserve to be called. Something that Jesus does not owe us. But because he was born in the likeness of man, now he can call us brothers. He's not ashamed to do this, Hebrews says. Because just as much as Jesus himself humbled himself as God to become a man... The redemption that he, Jesus, initiated is now able to make meager, mangy men one with God himself. All of this made possible by Jesus becoming a human. That is why it is referred to as bringing many sons to glory. It is said, he who sanctifies, which is Christ, sanctified means to make holy, to set apart, to draw out, to set apart in a way that's similar to being drawn out of Egypt into the promised land. I mean, this is, these are the implications of the word sanctify, to be drawn out of something and made holy. So, he who sanctifies, he who draws us out of sin and makes us holy, this is Christ, and those who are being sanctified... You and me, who are being drawn out of our sin and being made righteous and being made holy, we are all one. We are one. Jesus, the sanctifier, and we, the ones being sanctified, are being made one. We are being unified in Christ. That's the reason Christ is excited to call us brothers and sisters, because that's the reason he came to unify us, to bring us into the presence of God. The major component of all of this being made possible by the suffering of Christ, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ that he did while he lived. And these temptations are the beginning of that and in his death. Now, we don't want to be confused by this phrase being made perfect. Jesus, Jesus it says in, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, one thinks of perfection as, well, if you're made perfect, that means you are imperfect. So was Christ not perfect? Was he a sinner that was made perfect through sufferings? No, that is not what this this is saying. The perfection is in reference to him being the captain of our salvation, the one who drew us out of sin. Now you think about this and you think of a captain of a ship. A good captain will see his his ship sinking and he will call the Coast Guard to come and help his people. But the perfect captain, the kind of captain you want on your ship, is the captain who is willing to stay with the ship even if that means he and his crew are going to be cruising on the bottom of the ocean. That is the kind of captain that throughout history is considered an honorable captain. A dishonorable captain is a captain who, yeah, I care about my shipmates, but I'm not going down with them. Jesus came down with us to this earth in our futility, 
in our meagerness and suffered along with us. God did not need to suffer. He did not need to. He could have just left us here to suffer on our own because we're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who deserve our suffering. God had no obligation to suffer along with us. But Jesus, the perfect captain of our salvation, was made the perfect captain in that he came in his mercy and in his love to suffer alongside of us. To die a death that he had no obligation to have to experience. He did not have to subject himself to suffering and death. He had no need to do that. It wasn't his fault that we sinned. It wasn't his fault that we were condemned. It was not that Jesus was imperfect, but when he suffered for our sakes, it made him the one who is now able to deliver us from the same suffering. And we have to understand too, and we're going to stay in Hebrews chapter 2, but a couple of different verses. In understanding our weaknesses, Jesus is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For indeed, he, Jesus, does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. So we see here in this passage that Christ gives aid to you and I, the seed of Abraham, the humans who put our faith in Jesus. He gives us aid, not just because he is God and he's able to as God. But in verse 7, he makes, it, he makes the point that Jesus had to be made like us in order to do this. Because he lived the life that we live. He has seen what we see. He experienced what we experienced. And now his mercy is perfected because he now has first-hand experience pertaining to our afflictions. He's no longer, you know, you, perhaps some of you have been to a psychologist. And this psychologist is hearing all of your woes and all of your problems, your depression, your anxiety. He hasn't experienced any of those things. But, okay, well, here's, here's, some, here's a prescription Here's some general advice. Um, go about your way. Hope, wish you well. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is the one who is willing to come and suffer, to know what we know, to feel what we feel, to experience what we've experienced. His mercy is now spiritual and substantial but not for the sake of simply making us feel better. It says in verse 17, and things pertaining to God. Because a lot of times, honestly, we just want stuff that we don't really need. We want help with things that we shouldn't even really care about. He says, and things pertaining to God. Christ understands what is holding you back from God. He understands your temptations to sin. He understands the feeling of being anchored to the flesh. He understands the draw to vain things because he too, much through the enticing of Satan here in this chapter, was enticed by these things, yet without sin. So because he did so without sin, he is able to strengthen us and help us to also stand in our temptations without sin. He knows how to provide deliverance for those th same things so that you can bound unhindered into the arms of God. He is a freedom-giving God who gives you bold access through the veil into God's very throne room. The things, of our, the things of our sin, the things of the vanity of this world, those are the things that hold us back. Those are the things that hold us down. And Jesus knows how to deliver us from those things so that we can come before the presence of God. In verse 18, it says, Because he, too, suffered being tempted... Now see that. I want you to understand this and find encouragement in this. Temptation itself is referred to as a form of suffering. It's not necessarily that somebody comes against you to harm you. When you are tempted by the devil, by the things that you see around you, by the things that you experience around you, that temptation is a suffering. It's not just something that you fail or pass. It's a testing that produces agony and torture in your soul. 
which everybody in here knows very well. We know the agony of the soul that comes along, temptation, the attempts to resist the temptation. But sometimes we get discouraged because we feel that if we resist the temptation, we're not really any better off. But we know that if we give in, we are worse off because we know that sin brings forth death. But we don't really consider temptation as something that we can make ground through. We need, you know, we understand that we need to block the fiery darts of the devil, but we don't really feel like blocking those darts is helping us gain any ground in the battle. But we need to see the suffering that Jesus experienced in the flesh was considered the framework for fulfilling the work that his father had for him in the flesh. Through Jesus' obedience, through his suffering, he became able to deliver those who come to him by faith. We're going to look a little bit more in, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 5. And please try to stay with me. I know this is getting into some deep waters, all from a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 4. But this is like, I'm, I'm trying to lay the groundwork for understanding the humanity of Christ, because this is a doctrine that has gone misunderstood or we've just remained ignorant of the doctrine of Christ's humanity because we like to focus on his sovereignty. And it is good for us to, to love his sovereignty, sovereignty. But if we want to understand our salvation all the more, we also need to understand his humanity and why that was such a big deal. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, this is talking about Jesus, and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he, Jesus, learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see in verse 7 here, why did Jesus pray? Okay, we're talking about Jesus' humanity again. It says Jesus prayed, made supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, why did Jesus have to pray this if he was able to himself endure by himself? If temptation absolutely did nothing to him, if temptation had no draw, it came with no suffering, if temptation was worthless just because Jesus is God and untouchable by Satan, why is it that it is said that Jesus prayed, looking to God for guidance, for help, for, sustain, for sustainment? Why did he do so with vehement cries and tears? And why then would it say that he was praying to the one who could save him from death? Because Jesus was human. Jesus subjected himself to our weakness. Not to sin. He did not sin. Please understand that. But he came and he was weak like you and me. That's why he cried out vehemently to God to sustain him in his suffering. But you, yet you and I don't give it a second thought to pray in the midst of our suffering. When Jesus himself cried aloud vehemently to the one who could save him from death, the one who could intercede in this time of suffering. Yet we just pop a pill or you know, call a friend or whatever, but yet we don't pray to the one who can actually save us. We don't seek the one who came and became through all of this, the one who can actually give us aid. We don't care. We don't want to pray and subject ourselves to God. No. I have vitality in and of myself. I have the power to endure. I have the power to overcome. That's what we say when we don't pray. Jesus himself did not even do that. He sought the face of the Father. He sought the power of the Holy Spirit in his suffering. Let that convict you and I when we suffer that Jesus himself relied on the strength of the Spirit. 
And in verse 8 it says, Though he was a son, talking about more of his son of godness, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Does that mean Jesus was disobedient and learned to obey? No, that's not what that's saying. (coughs) There was never any temptation apart from Satan, and Satan was cast out of heaven. Jesus had never needed to obey. He and the Father and the Spirit were all, all existed in one accord, in unity of heart, soul, and mind. There was no need to obey a law when Jesus was in his glorified state. There was no need to obey a law. There was no law that anybody could place over God. But Jesus learned what it was like to obey when he came in humanity. He learned how hard it is to obey when you're surrounded by the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He learned what that was like. And he was made perfect through his obedience in that this is also talking about his, the will of God for him to come to be just like you and me so that he could save you and me. He had to obey. Never had to do that before. And that there's no law to obey in heaven as God. But he learned to do it. How? By the things that he suffered. You and I, how do we learn to obey? Not through times of pleasure and green grass and sunshine. We learn, just like Jesus, obedience through suffering. We like to give ourselves an out. You know, I acted like this because of my situation. Give me a break. My situation was hard. I'm not normally like this. I don't normally have these issues. But things have just been tough and stressful, so just kind of give me an out. That's the complete opposite (laughs) of what's being said here about humanity and our response to suffering. Suffering is given to us so that we can learn to obey. Not so that we can make excuses for why we acted a certain way. Suffering draws out what's inside the tea bag, just like the hot water draws out what's inside the tea bag. We are the tea bag. When we go through suffering, it draws out what's in there. And when we see that, we learn to obey. We see that and we see how we want to react. We see our lusts. We see our anger. We see our anxiety. And that gives us opportunity now to purge that through obedience. Jesus made this profitable for us by doing this while he was alive. While he was on this earth. And I want you to see, just in Matthew chapter 4, I just want to read these verses again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And you and I, we must be led by the Spirit. Jesus himself subjected himself to the guidance of God's Spirit. You and I must be led by the Spirit. We must not lead ourselves. We must not let some television psychologist lead us. We cannot let a religion lead us. Or a church lead us. We must be led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not subject himself first and foremost, to the operations of man. He subjected himself to the Spirit. And he did so, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. In his fasting, in his temptations, Jesus is becoming like us, experiencing what we experience, knowing what we know, feeling what we feel, And he did so while he was 40 days hungry. As weak as man can get, he he dove into the depths of human suffering, agony, weakness. And in in these times, that's when Satan came to him, to tempt him, while he was at his weakest. And he stood so that he 
as the perfect sacrifice, could come to you and me and offer you his righteousness. He says, I have obtained righteousness for you. I have, I have endured all the suffering that any man could endure. And I did so without sin. I subject, I, the one who did not need to be subjected to the law, the only one in the universe who did not need to be subjected to a law, I subjected myself to a law so that I could, from the law, rise from the, from the dead, having conquered death having overcome the condemnation of the law, having destroyed its curse, and give you the righteousness, the type of righteousness that makes it right for you to stand before God in confidence that God will not turn you away. Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us his perfect righteousness. And now Jesus is glorified. And he lives to intercede on our behalf. He is there to give us strength to resist the oppressor, the oppressor, the tempter. He knows exactly what you feel. He knows exactly your anxieties, the things that tempt you, that test you, that try you. He knows all of those things. He endured all of those things at the weakest. You can find him to be reliable. We must walk in the Spirit, and we must understand that Christ obtained righteousness for us, and he had to do what he did by coming in the flesh in order to be the perfect captain of our salvation, the perfect spiritual Moses to redeem us from sin and lead us to the promised land. We're still on our way to the promised land. We're going, and Jesus is coming with us. He has given us access, and he's giving us the strength to endure. We already have the access. We have the right to become the sons of God. We have that right in Christ and the righteousness that he gave us. And he's giving us the ability to get there. Will you endure in the name of Jesus, walking in the Spirit? Let's pray.